box of cereal, Martin? No, thank you, baby. I'm not hungry. No, 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 baby. It ain't no any box of cereal. Gina, come on. I'm taking you on vacation, baby. I'm taking you to Chilligan's Island. I just wanted to let you know about my study group. Oh, don't be a fuddy-duddy. I'll be your study buddy. I'm about to embark on one of the great challenges of my scientific career. This work right here is going to change history. I think this is going to be our greatest mission. I don't have time to study. I'm never getting to Stanford. I got big plans for you tonight. I got maps. I got charts. I got to see you through this because my credibility is on the line. It's at this point that you'll want to start taking notes. Welcome to the Sitcom Study, the podcast where we contemplate the TV shows we grew up with and search for the truth and wisdom within the tropes and cliches. And it seems like just last week we were foaming at the mouth, hooked on pills, bouncing off the walls, but we've recovered. We're moving on with our lives. Amy, what is our trope this week? Well, this week we're going on a romantic getaway, hon. Yeah, romantic getaways gone wrong. Uh, because it would be boring if they went right. Yeah. I mean, I guess in the sitcom, that sort of goes without saying. What's our lineup? What are the shows? We are watching a highly rated Dick Van Dyke show, season four, episode 27, Never Bathe on a Saturday. Kate and Allie making a podcast debut, season five, episode 15, Almost Married. Mad About You, Season 1, Episode 14, Weekend Getaway, also making its debut. And Martin, Season 3, Episode 24, The Romantic Weekend. Yeah, it's an interesting lineup. Obviously, the Dick Van Dyke show is taking us way back. And then we're getting as far as the 90s with Martin. We've got two lodgings turned out to be extremely crappy scenarios, and then we have two sort of idyllic locations that end up sort of giving us more than we bargained for. So what's your experience with romantic getaways gone wrong? Do you have an anecdote that jumps out at like, oh, let me tell you about the time we tried to go to Niagara Falls and we fell off? No, I, I have horror stories from a terrible marriage, but the, that yeah. just had more to do with like the personality. I guess maybe that's a, a little bit of a dangerous territory to, to just casually wade into. What about you? You are not a vacationing type, right? You're no. not a traveling type. So what about you? I was thinking about this earlier today. I don't have anything super specific or outlandish. I will say that I was very good at getting lost you know, particularly, you know, my girlfriend in college and I would go on not a lot of fancy like international trips or anything, but we would find ourselves driving to places that were a few hours away. And this was before this was after the Internet, but before cell phones and GPS and all of that. And I remember a lot of just a lot of like driving around in frustrated silence or bickering about the right way to go or just sort of having to pull over and ask people or debating about whether or not to pull over and ask people. So that's sort of the closest thing that I have. I will say this, that I think in general, there is a thing in life where whether you're talking about a romantic getaway or a family vacation or something, 
the things that are sort of supposed to be like fun and relaxing with a capital F and a capital R, you know, and really sort of like, this is what it's all building to, right? We work at our crappy jobs just so that we can finally get away and do this thing that those often do tend to be the times that are the most tense or stressful or where the conflicts arise because it's a lot of pressure. And even though it's somewhere that we want to be, everyone's kind of out of their element and there's a lot of planning and stuff. So the general idea that, you know, you sort of God laughs at our best laid plans like that, (laughs) that does ring true. Right. And I think part of the thing that kind of is the common thread here is it reminds me of New Year's Eve. Mm-hmm. New Year's Eve is never fun. Yeah. And it's for all the reasons that you just stated, right? Like you're just giving too much of a pedestal or too much of a position to this one moment or this one night. And it just, there's no way anything can live up to it. And everything is crowded and expensive or not what you thought it would be. And so it's just no matter what, it's a letdown. And I think as a person who has traveled just a ton, I stopped trying to think of vacations that way. You just sort of, I think, have to go into it with the understanding that the highs are going to be high and the lows are going to be low. And that with those sort of adventures, you know, you're going to have these lasting memories and these interesting experiences, but you probably are going to get in fights and get frustrated with each other and have all of those exasperating situations, you know, not with each other, with the world, with everything. And so I think if you sort of go into it with that expectation, then, you know, you're you're a step ahead. Yeah. So let's get into our shows. Dick Van Dyke. This is uh, our second time, I think, talking about Dick Van Dyke. We love these guys. This is way before our time, but I at least grew up with this on Nick at Night reruns. I think I talked about last time how Mary Tyler Moore was the first adult woman that I had a crush on. But this is one of the great old-timey sitcoms. Yeah, for sure. And this one in particular is a fan favorite and a cast favorite. So there's some drama uh, behind the scenes on this one. Carl Reiner, it's the, he was the um, like showrunner, creator, creator of mm-hmm. this show. It was the only time he ever lost his temper on set. Apparently, this was one of these like great experiences for all of the cast. Everybody was happy. Everybody really loved doing the show. And, you know, and so he lost his temper. And Mary Tyler Moore was quitting smoking this week. And she walked off the set because she didn't have enough screen time and she was all pissy from yeah, quitting smoking. Yeah, ties into our episode from last week. Yep. That's funny. She was high strung. She was high strung. So all was settled. All was fine. You know, she was placated and con- was you know convinced to come back to set. And they added in some of the her talking to Millie scenes in the in-betweens where she and Rob are explaining to their neighbor, Millie, what's going, what had happened on their romantic getaway weekend in order to give her more screen time because the setup for the episode was just going to be they were away and she was locked in this bathroom the whole time. That's funny. I mean, there's, yeah, you said a lot just there. The fact that she would be annoyed at not having screen time is bizarre because as we'll get into, that's part of the whole gimmick of this episode. And it kind of ties in with this this weird sort of thread that we've been weaving for several episodes now, this this theme of the off-screen comedy, you know, of Les right. Nessman in WKRP recounting what he's seeing when the turkeys are falling from the sky. And now this whole thing is going to involve off-camera humor 
But yeah, it's interesting that she would object to that because I would argue it's still definitely a showcase for her comedy, even though you don't get to see her. And the other thing I just wanted to throw out there off the bat is how this is kind of a fun, it sort of comes full circle when we'll get to Martin at the end, how both of these really get into that studio audience, like one foot in the world of vaudeville vibe. Or just theater in general. Yeah, 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 just really playing off of the onset silliness, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's crazy costumes or slapstick stuff. But the yeah. physical comedy in both Martin and, um, I was going to say Mary Tyler Moore, and the Dick Van Dyke show Definitely. are off the chain. I mean, and we saw that the last time we saw Martin as well. Yeah. I was like, man, they, this is great. Like, right. This is a the, lot of the fun. The patterns, I'm now starting to remember the patterns of Martin and really getting a sense of what the MO of that show is. But so let's talk about this. Dick Van Dyke episode has this sort of framing structure that you alluded to. Right. So it's one of these episodes that's kind of told in a flashback, but we go into the flashback and we're there for a lot of the time. Uh, As I mentioned, that was because of a a way that they were trying to placate Mary Tyler Moore to get her back on set. She has said in interviews since that she thinks the episode is hilarious and she was wrong, (laughs) but she's also said it was, she blamed it on quitting smoking. Yeah. Um, And it's also one of Dick Van Dyke's favorite episodes. So Millie is their neighbor and um, Rob and Lori come home early. She's been looking in on their house and they're home early from their romantic getaway weekend. And it looks like they've been having a fight. They're and very sullen. Right. And they're not really kind of talking to each other. They're sort of short with each other, but not in a mean way, just like an exhausted way. So Millie, the nosy neighbor, just keeps prying, trying to find out what's going on. Rob's bringing everything in. Laura kind of like hobbles over to the couch and sits down, kicks off her little kitten heels that she's known for, puts her feet up right away. So then they start to get into it, but not telling the whole story, just telling us just enough so that we want to like watch the rest. Yeah, Millie keeps asking them like, so you got into a fight, right? And they're like, well, kind of, but not really. And there's just this sense of like, uh, it's a long story, you know, and then when they finally get into it, it is one of these things like, all right, well, it all started when and then you sort of get the blurry, you know, dissolved to them arriving in a hotel. And this is not one of our the hotel is crappy situations. This is a nice sort of almost opulent hotel yeah, room. Absolutely luxurious is how they describe it. And it is their second honeymoon. And this, uh, you know, Ooh, avant-garde, sexy scandal, right? The This is at a time where married couples sleep in separate beds. I remember thinking this when and, this was happening. Yeah, and this has a, a nice big double or queen-size bed right there, very prominently in the middle of the hotel room. And while they never get in it or, you know, uh, they definitely allude to it and yeah. how they're so excited that they're, you know, it's their second honeymoon, it's so romantic, and, oh, you know, why don't you put on an ascot? Oh, and even a mustache and a smoking jacket. You'll look like, you know, Dave, what do they call it? David Niven? David Niven is name-checked at least seven times in this episode. It's wild. Uh, now, don't get me wrong. I love David Niven, primarily from Murder by Death. He's in the Pink Panther movies and everything. 
He's this great sort of classy, you know, old timey British actor, but he is very much Dick Van Dyke's uh, role model. (laughs) Well, or at least who Mary Tyler Moore is very interested in having a little role play with. Um, So she, you know, pulls out some like frilly, frou-frou-y, you know, lingerie that's very like 1950s, 60s. It's long and got little fuzzy fur on it. And Rob's like, ooh, and she's like, well, I'm going to go soak. And he's like, okay. And they are going to see a show that night. So she's going to soak for a little while. They order caviar and champagne. So that's going to be coming. Laura goes into the take a, a soak in the tub. And we're supposed to understand that some time has passed. And well, then, Rob does his whole sort of like one man show for right. us. Like this is another sort of hallmark from the old timey shows is like there doesn't need to be more than one character on the set for somebody to be doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And so he just for the benefit of of himself, I guess, like within the world of the show, he does this whole routine where he turns himself into a Latin lover, like to pass the time. No, he's dressing up like David Niven. She tells him, oh, yes, I'd like you to wear the smoking jacket. And he's like, oh, and an ascot, perhaps. And she's like, oh, yes, see if you can grow a mustache. And he's like, well, I'll work on it. And then she goes off to the bath. And then that's what he does, like Uh, goofing around. Yeah, I didn't realize that one thing had anything to do with the other. I thought he was just like being silly. No, he was like, oh, she wants some sexy role play? I'll be sexy. Oh, isn't this going to be fun? So then we get to watch him go step by step. By the way, with her eyeliner or eyebrow pencil, he draws on a fabulous mustache in black and white television. Like I'm like, that looks great. Yeah, it it convinces the bellboy, at least for a while. Right. And that's the other thing with this episode is that you have this sort of rotating cast of hotel staff coming in and out. You've got the bellboy who, and then you've got the maid who's bringing towels who she famous character actress like always kind of plays those like surly yeah like hard like tough kind of hard-nosed women and then same with the the waiter um who brings in the champagne and caviar he's also a character actor that you know is is very recognizable yeah well so you know long story short laura gets stuck in the bathroom right rob says at some point don't toy with me you saucy witch right that's his (laughs) like Sussy wench, come on out. And she can't because her toe is stuck in the bathroom tub faucet. From here on in, apparently to Mary Tyler Moore's chagrin, we basically don't see Laura ever again. This this is entirely going to be Rob in the room talking through the door to her, through the bathroom door, as she sort of explains sheepishly, step by step, I can't open the door because it's locked and I can't get out of the tub because I stuck my big toe into the faucet of the tub because I was playing with the drip, right? That's what she says? Yes. He's like, well, I'll just break down the door. And she's like, you can't do that. You know, so all of this is like this very protracted communication. Like she's embarrassed. And so she's like, oh, Rob, I just don't want to. I can't reach it. And, you know, anyway, so... So she says he can't break down the door because there's a mirror on the back of the door. And if he breaks down the door, it'll shatter. And he's like, yeah, but it'll just fall onto the ground. And she's like, no, there's a brass towel bar on the uh, like around it. So it'll hit that and then it'll shatter even farther. And I don't want it to end up in the tub with me. And he's like, well, grab the bath mat. Can you reach that? And she's like, yeah. And he's like, now cover yourself with the bath mat. I'm going to try and break down the door. And so we get, you know, him again 
again, really physical comedy, Dick Van Dyke, you know, yeah, he moment charges here. the door like a matador. He does the thing <laughs> where he kind of puts his forearm like at a right angle from his from himself and just, yeah, runs across the room. I've always wondered if I could break down a door. <laughs> this is something that happens in the movies and TV. I've never had the opportunity. I've always wondered, like, how strong and heavy do you have to be for this to work? Is this some, the kind of thing that in real life, you know, never works and is only in the movies or is actually kind of easy to do? Man, I feel like back in my television reporter days, I had a conversation with cops about this. Uh -huh. But I think I remember them saying that the stupidest thing to do is try to do it with your shoulder. Like you're just going to put your shoulder out. The best thing to do is kick kick it because yeah. that's stronger and most doors i think if you kick off the door knob you could get your finger in there and pull the little latch out so as long as it's not like locked with a certain locking mechanism right you know if it's just stuck or whatever then or you know then you can do that but i feel like that and then for some reason I feel like I'm also remembering that if it is like a like a locked sort of padlock situation, not padlock, but like deadbolt lock situation, the easiest way to go is to kick at the hinge side. Interesting. All right. Well, good. <laughs> All good. Good tips. In case you want to break down some doors. But anyway, so he can't. Right. He's not successful at breaking down the doors. And in the meanwhile, the bellboy has come back up and has seen him with this mustache and is like... That's not... There's an intruder. That's not really Mr. Petrie. This is a, a false guy. And I know it's a false guy because I'm part of the junior detective squad yeah. and I'm going to be a hotel detective someday. So, I need to ask about this. There are a couple of job titles thrown around in this episode that I did not know about in terms of the standard hotel roster. So before we get to him... There's uh, Rob wants an engineer, right? Is that a standard thing? You call the front desk at a hotel and say, send the engineer? I mean, there have to be people on staff that come to fix things. To fix things, to but fix that... things like your air conditioning right. or the radiator. So I would imagine at this time, maybe. And he made reference that there was an elevator issue. So maybe the engineer yeah. was just already there for I that. I guess... I don't I guess maintenance guy it sounds yeah. sounds more familiar to me just the way he threw out that phrase oh I'll see if the engineer is around as though that's as standard as like the housekeeper so this hotel in addition to having the engineer has the on-site house detective that's right right a British uh, sort of Sherlock Holmes-esque detective, right? Well, he this, looks more like a Watson, but yes. Yeah, this actor behaves like straight from Shakespeare in the Park. He's got the British accent and yeah, that very distinctive look you're talking about. Well, good for you. He is a British actor. He's actually Wel Welsh, so he would probably be frustrated that I called him British. But <laughs> so he's Welsh and he is from Hogan's Heroes and Andy Griffith and Barnaby Jones. He was on a ton of shows in the 60s and stuff. Sure. But what is this house detective? I've never heard of that in reference to, like I said, a someone on the payroll of a hotel. I mean, maybe a really swanky hotel. How often do you stay at a Ritz Carlton? Yeah. I, I, I don't mean, know. The answer is never. Never. But, yeah, uh, I don't know. Yeah. It's, so it's this guy's job to investigate mysteries and, you know, 
apprehend villains, I guess. So he comes in with his little revolver and everything, you know, hands up. What are you trying to pull? And we know you're not Mr. Petrie. Yeah. And so what Rob, it somehow ends up that Rob Dick Van Dyke has the gun and right. is menacing them. So the last person who's gone out, because like we said, there's been this like rotating cast of guest stars coming in to try to, you know, bring the champagne or bring the key or bring new towels or whatever. The last person who went out didn't close the door, right? Or or the door was like left open a smidge. So Rob is about to try to break down the door for the third or fourth time. And Laura is like, oh, Rob, don't do it. I just, just don't come in. Just leave me alone and she's just like screaming and screaming and so that's what the detective is hearing when the bellboy brings him back and so he just based off what he's hearing so we've got like all it's a weird it's like a one-man farce right because laura's in the bathroom dick van dyke on his own is in the room and all these people keep coming in but just because of the sound it becomes farcical it's uh, which i was like that is really smart like this is very this is really good yeah i mean yeah they've contrived a scenario where uh, you've got a woman screaming for help. You've got a man who now looks completely different than he did before. When they checked in, he right? Disguised himself as a joke. And <laughs> so yeah, this pretty unlikely scenario that yes has resulted in these investigators. But how does Rob turn the table on? Right. That? So he, they, like you know, the detective is like, "You get away from that door," and he's standing in front of the door, and then he gets down. You know, Rob gets down on his knees and is like okay whatever and then the detective and the bellboy turn back to face the door and they're like it's okay ma'am we're gonna get you out you know we're gonna we're gonna shoot this door handle off and she's like no and he's like rob's like you can't go in there don't go in there no one ever says because my wife is naked but there's just all this like noise like no and so and then rob stands up and he pretends like he has a gun and he puts it in the detective's back and he with his fingers and he's like you know turn around and give me your weapon or whatever and so he does that that old gambit that's right so he does that and he gets the gun away from them yeah see that doesn't always work on real police officers but hotel house detectives you can pull the use your finger as a gun yes mall cops as well i would assume so yeah they finally they get into the bathroom and they cut her out like they cut the pipe out. Yes, uh, the engineer finally arrives. Yeah. So Rob with the gun shoots the handle off the door uh-huh. and then opens it up. Well, what's funny is as soon as he shoots the handle off the door, the door springs open. Yeah. Like boing. That's, that's how they work. <laughs> All that tension's work. been building that's up for right. hours. And so then he goes in and immediately starts laughing. And she, we get the classic, oh, Rob, you know. And so he's laughing and he's like, guys, you got to get in here and see this. And then he sticks his head back out of the door. No, just don't. I, I don't mean that. And so they still think he's a bad guy and then all gets kind of settled. But again, that sort of happens off camera. The next we go to commercial and the next scene we see is the engineer sitting on the edge of the tub. And Laura, the tub has drained now. Because at first she didn't want to drain the tub because it was too cold in the bathroom. She just didn't want to sit there naked and wet. And so now they've got her coat around her and the tub is drained. And the um, the guy, is, the engineer is using a hacksaw to 
saw through the faucet and he says, you know, how how big is your toe? How long is your toe? Is it about the same size as that other toe? Okay, I'll cut here. And then, you know, the like taking very slow strokes, the opposite of the overactive sawing that yeah. we saw last week with um with Urkel. Yeah, they cut her out. She never, like, actually gets out of the pipe. She still has a little piece uh, around her. We get this sort of postscript that we don't even get to see where they go to the they go to the show, but they don't go in because they cross paths with their pastor and the church congregation. And right. Dick Van Dyke still had his fake mustache on. Yes. And they decided that they were too embarrassed to be seen by the church people with so their mustache. So what we find out from this is that it's not her eyebrow pencil or her eyeliner that he's grabbed out of her purse to draw on his fun mustache. It was a laundry marker, which is kind of like a permanent marker, so he couldn't get it off. So she decides to wrap up her foot and just like she has a broken ankle or something, just do a big bandage on her foot and go to the show anyway. So they got there right as curtain was about to go up and who should walk in but their pastor and some of the members of their congregation and Rob's got this funny mustache on and he's embarrassed and they're embarrassed. And I think one of the people says he doesn't look like David Niven. He looks like this other actor who apparently is like a silent film star who's yeah, cross-eyed that, or that something. Was asking a little much 80 years after yeah. the airing of this show to get that <laughs> To reference. get that joke. But so then Dick Van Dyke like crosses his eyes and makes a funny face when he's retelling that part. And I was like, no, that actor must have crossed eyes. Yeah. <laughs> like no, sorry, we were with you with David Niven, but that's... <laughs> go further than that so yeah so they decide not to go in and then millie's like well you don't have the mustache now i don't understand and then we get this great like reverse engineered thing where he's like oh yeah and takes out a uh hanky or whatever and starts wiping his face and he's like you know what works really well makeup so he had covered up the mustache with makeup he's like the joker in tim burton's batman he has to cover his like unerasable makeup with more normal guy makeup right uh yeah, so I don't know. This one, very fun episode. I feel like this is not the kind of thing that's trying to have any growth or moral or insight, right? This is like a fun little adventure. Yeah. And it's even, again, it's so interesting to to find out that some of this was a sort of you know, was a way of placating Mary Tyler Moore because I would have guessed that structure of having the whole thing be a flashback was part of the whole sort of genesis of why you do this in the first place. The whole thing just seems like a fun sort of change of pace, you know, kind of like a bottle episode, like we talk about this little self-contained adventure. And yeah, you know, there's not much to really chew on. It's just like a fun little, you know, fun little time. So one other fun fact about this episode is that there is an iCarly homage to it. It's called I Toe Fat Cakes. And the storyline is uh, Carly is getting ready for a date and is watching this episode. And is like, you can't get your toe stuck in a faucet. And bloop, she gets her toe stuck in the bathtub faucet and can't go on her date. That's funny. So I guess that means means that Dan Schneider, who played Dennis on Head of the Class and was the creator of iCarly or the executive producer of iCarly, was a Dick Van Dyke fan. Okay, moving on to Kate and Allie. Kate and Allie, season five, episode 15, Almost Married, or And Then There Were None. 
Yeah, this is another one like Small Wonder where some of the episodes have two episode titles. Who knows? So what is your experience with Kate and Allie? This was a show my mom liked, and so I watched some of it I, you know, with her, but I was young, and this was a show for grown-ups. I remember the kids. The kids were not in this episode. This was a romantic getaway with the Kate and Allie and their respective boyfriends. But yeah, I just remember it was the lady from SNL, so I thought that was cool because I've been an SNL fan since before I understood the jokes on SNL, and that is my experience. I also have the experience of my mom being a fan of this show, and that made me curious. You know, I've been looking forward to doing Kate and Allie on the podcast because it's one of those, like, I remember the commercials, and I remember kind of walking through the room briefly, but I don't think I ever saw any of it. You know, as a kid, why in the, why in the world would I be interested in this sitcom about moms? And this was sort of like earlier 80s, like I feel like we were younger. So this is one I've been very curious about. And I have to say, I don't know. I hate it when people use this word. It's not even a word, but like meh. I think is kind of <laughs> the way I feel about it. Yeah, with this one, it's the show ran for six seasons. We're kind of midway, almost to the end, um, like a you know two thirds of the way through season five, and this is at the end of this season. This is when the show you know jumps the shark, according to you know all of the the talk out there in the cat Kate and Allie universe but the show is better when it's focusing on Kate and Allie and the ways that they're sort of getting over their respective divorces and making their way in this world as a single woman and trying to support each other this episode gets them out of the city and away from their children and so we have none of the charm of the original premise so we're not really judging Kate and Allie. We can't based on this episode because we're not watching a, a regular Kate and Allie. Yeah, I guess I was just a little, if not disappointed, just a little sort of curious about like exactly what their dynamic is. Like what's the, what's the zhuzh that's, that's behind this show? You know, I get that Jane Curtin obviously is a founding member of the SNL troupe, right? So she's legendary because of that. I don't really know who this other lady is. And so, yeah, like you said, two divorcees kind of joining forces, you know, them against the world, classic sitcom formula. But if we're talking about how Dick Van Dyke and Martin had this whole like crazy physical comedy sort of at the core of their DNA and then other shows have maybe a particular sensibility of a stand-up comedian or something. With this show, I was just kind of like, okay, a couple single ladies, gotcha. You know, I, I'm, I'm on board, tell me more. And it just never really kicks into any kind of a gear. Like it, it's not really that funny or it just doesn't, I just don't really like get what the, what the thing is. Yeah. Know? And again, this isn't the episode to get that from, right? So seasons one and two are really lovely from the bits that I remember again, you know, vague memories, but then also what I've read since we've watched the episode. So you have Kate and that's Susan St. James, who is, um, she was sort of like a, like a sexy young bombshell kind of actress in the 60s. Not bombshell like Bridget Bardot, but sort of like sexy, quirky, kooky, like a Shirley MacLaine. Uh That was like her thing. And so then as she got older, this was her, oh, I don't have that 
same movie Hollywood career. This was her like second act, right? Where now I've got some wrinkles, so I have to play a mom. So she uh, has a a daughter. And then Allie, played by Jane Curtin, has a son and a daughter. And Allie, Jane Curtin's character, has given up her career and didn't even finish her college degree when she got married. And so she's been a housewife for all these years. She's just gone through a divorce. And her friend, Kate, has also gone through a divorce, but has kept her career, has has always worked. And so they decide that it's hard to be single. It's hard to afford an apartment in New York City. So they get a two-story, or they they have two floors of this brownstone in Greenwich Village that they rent out. And that's why their apartment, I'm using quotes, looks so palatial. Yeah. Because it is a, it's supposed to be two floors, a basement and the first floor of a brownstone in Greenwich Village, which, like, wow, that they could afford that, right? But, I mean, yeah, maybe it was different in the still, 80s. Yeah, I mean, it was <laughs> Certainly expensive, but things were different in the 80s. Yeah. So that's what they like kind of pooled their resources and that's what they rent following their divorces. Allie in the first season is is still a stay at home mom and like doing the like household chores. And she's also finishing her degree that she had given up and Kate works. And so that kind of they take on sort of like the traditional gender roles in the like the person who does the domestic work and the person who does the uh, money making work outside of the house. Right. They're both strong, independent women. Yes, they dated men pretty frequently throughout the series, but that like the core of it was like them as strong, independent women and their friendship together. Yeah. Like so, Laverne and Shirley kind of, but grown up later right. in life. Not a, and but not as like ma- kind of manic, silly as the right. as the. Well, they, again, maybe they're they more were serious like that when they were younger. Yeah, maybe who knows? But so the pushback from the network executives was that Kate and Allie, it was just a, it was like a front for a lesbian sitcom. Hmm. And so they uh, made the show have Kate and Allie have a nighttime conversation at the end of every episode and then visibly go into two separate bedrooms to prove to the audience that they were not lesbians because they slept in separate separate bedrooms. I love the phrasing affront. Not that there was lesbian subtext that it was a front for a lesbian sitcom, the way that a laundromat is a front <laughs> for a mob That's right. headquarters. It's a, is it called a beard when you, when, you, <laughs> <laughs> when like, you're a TV show? When you're a TV yeah. show. I don't know. But uh, yeah, all, the premise is all fine. One thing that all of our shows that we're talking about have in common tonight is that they're all urban, right? All of these families or couples live in cities. And that's not necessarily the emphasis in Dick Van Dyke, but this one starts with all of them, both of these couples, right? Like you mentioned, Kate and Allie have their respective boyfriends, Ted and Bob, and they're all sitting around sort of trading horror stories about how their dates are always going wrong because the city's too crowded and expensive and all the things everybody always complains about. Uh, One of them says... There's too many people in New York and too few tranquilizers. (laughs) Yeah, they're complaining. Um, We get this in both 
this episode and also in Mad About You, yeah. where the you know the main characters are sort of one upping each other with the horrors of trying right. to like get through the day in a city as crowded as New York. Right, city which, life gets you down. As a person who actively commutes 16 miles and it takes me nearly two hours a day to go that far, uh, I totally understand the frustration of the city needing to get away from the city and the crowdedness and the people and the hubbub. Yeah, but of course, uh, like a lot of these sitcom characters learn, you sort of, uh, you know, I don't know if you would call it Stockholm Syndrome or (laughs) what, but you eventually end up sort of missing uh, all of those things that terrorize you about living in the city. We should say that going into this, there is a running thing where Ted is bad at planning things, right? That's already an issue that they've been having. I forget what the example is, but he's bad at planning dates. And he's the one that has this idea where he says, I have a friend or a colleague or something who has a cabin, you know, out in the country that we can use. The four of us can go to and get away from the city. Right. He has a rich friend. And the reason that his friend says you can use the cabin in the Adirondacks at any time is because he also bought a beach house at Ma- in Montauk and he's usually there. So they say, well, that actually sounds great. Let's do it. Let's get away for the weekend. Again, we're in season five, so the kids are all a little bit more grown. You know, they were kind of late elementary school preteen uh, when the show started. We're five years in. So they're all solidly in their teenage years now. And they can, without any hubbub, be shipped off to yeah, friends' this houses. This is always what happens to us when we get to these when we discover these late in the series episodes, which tend to be the tropier ones, and we never even get to meet the kids because by this point in the series, same thing with the Jeffersons, they've stopped even having them. Right. They're just, they're, they're, they come around every now and then. But the kids are actually pretty talented. Like, uh, Allie's daughter is played by, I think she was the longest running Annie on Broadway. So I was, I was like hoping I would get to see that. No, don't get to see no. her at all. <laughs> We're off to the cabin, and before knowing, the direction that this story was heading, I put in my notes, the cabin has a Friday the 13th vibe. Yes. Uh, they walk Camp in. Crystal Lake, stabby stabs. Yeah, it's all creepy. And this is, you know, similar thing that we're going to get in Martin. Your sort of basic... Uh, fear that we all have, right, when going on this, you know, vacation or anything. What if you get there and it sucks? Yeah. And so there's no heat. There's no television. Everybody except Allie was looking forward to watching this basketball game. They're all really in, you know, the guys and Kate are really into sports. And so they were all looking forward to that and just relaxing, putting their feet up. And nope. It's dirty and there's like dirty socks sitting everywhere and it's just not and there's no heat and there's no television and it's just way more rustic and run down than they were anticipating. But after some griping and some going back and forth about whether or not to go back to the city, they decide to stay mostly to make Ted feel better. But then we find out that on the way there, they were stopped in a police barricade Mm -hmm. across the road because there's an escaped convict on the loose. And so they, you know, 
this doesn't this episode has a shitty plot, but we get to see Jane Curtin being sort of manic, which was what she's known for in this I mean, sort of in her career, but particularly in this series, like she was known for this sort of like manic kind of fresh. Yes. And so she gets to play that really in lots of fun ways in this episode. Yeah. And this is another trope. This is definitely an overlapping sitcom trope of the escaped killer of the you turn on the TV and the Mississippi Strangler is on the loose and he's been spotted in the area. And then, you know, somebody heard a rustling outside, but it turned out to just be Joe the neighbor or something. Yes. The overlapping trope on sitcoms that also goes along with Girl Scout and Boy Scout camp. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So... Escaped killer notwithstanding, they decide to play Trivial Pursuit, right? That's basically the only entertainment that's available to them. Yeah, they say, we'll make the best of it, we'll light a fire, we'll play a game. Now, this this was my favorite part, I think. You have Ted isn't good, he doesn't like art and literature, but they have the other guy, Bob, he is good at Trivial Pursuit. And so he's winning, he gets to the end where you get to the middle square and your opponents get to choose which category to ask you as the last thing yes Uh, and just the the way this actor does the faux horror like he gets up and is stumbling across the room every time they go like let's ask him geography and he goes oh no not geography no i hate geography and they're like no he actually is really good at geography and he does that with every category you know Look, I'm not saying the guys, you know, Dick Van Dyke, but in in Kate and Allie, I feel like this is, you know, I latched onto this as a funny bit. It was a funny, it was a charming moment for sure. And also I like just personally rings true. We love to play Trivial Pursuit. Yeah. And my family always accuses me of having memorized all the questions, which <laughs> is not true. I'm just very smart. Yeah. So... <laughs> So what? The police officer comes looking for the escaped convict. Yeah. Right. So the guys say, oh, you know, we're short on firewood. We're going to go out and look for firewood. And the girls are like, OK, cool. You know, we'll clean up the game or whatever. And then this man knocks on the door that he's supposed to be like a state trooper or something. But yeah. he is dressed like a Confederate soldier. He is wearing a gray outfit with the long like the the jacket is really long, like almost looks like a tailcoat. He's got the big hat on that's like not as tall as a Mountie hat, but like a squat Mountie hat. And he's got the the chin strap doesn't go under his chin. It goes in that little divot between your bottom lip and your chin. And it's just like sitting right there. He looked like something out of the eight, 1860s. I do have to ask you, have you ever seen a New York State trooper? Is this what they look like? Uh... I I agree that I thought he was dressed weird too, but a lot of the things you're mentioning are are real. The, the, the long sta- tailcoat? That part not necessary. I was like, what is happening? I can't here? speak to the tailcoat, but the state troopers do dress very differently than the normal police. They wear gray, they do have the hats. There's this urban legend, I don't know if it's true, that a state trooper can't ticket you. If he forgets to wear his hat. And so. (laughs) This is some bullshit. I don't believe that. I've always heard that if you get pulled over by a state trooper on the highway and he's not wearing his hat, he comes up, he says, Do you know how fast you're going? Or do you know why I pulled you over? If you just go, "Uh, Excuse me, trooper, where's your hat? 
he will say, I'm sorry, have a nice day, and turn around and walk away. I doubt that it's real, but they do wear gray. They do have the hats that are like the sort of squat fedoras like you're talking about with the strap. Maybe not quite as weird as as that guy. It was almost like he couldn't talk because it was resting under his bottom lip. The trooper is sort of trying to simultaneously, you know, assuage their concerns and calm them down, but also sort of supplying them with information that is kind of alarming. Right. Uh, Saying, you know, uh, he was like, hey, have you seen anybody or is anybody come through here or whatever? And they were like, no, is is he in the area? And then he won't tell them if he's in the area. He also won't tell them, you know, what crime he was convicted of. Um, and so, and they were like, well, if it was just a, you know, something simple, then it, he wouldn't be, they wouldn't be hunting for him. It's got to be like murder. And then he like stays silent and they're like, oh, it's murder. Oh yeah. Cause, <laughs> cause the one of them is trying to convince the other that he probably escaped prison for littering right you know? right uh and at this point the guys they've gone out right like they've gone out to look for firewood so uh at this point this is now like time is passing and like the anxiety is sort of accumulating right because um, they aren't coming back and they aren't coming back and they aren't coming back and they are coming back and so then they start to get scared and so then the girls are trying to decide do we go out to look for the guys and then Allie's like well I have to go to the bathroom so you know I don't want to stay by myself come with me no I don't want to go she goes out to the bathroom and it's an outhouse right and there are two dead rabbits hanging from the ceiling of the outhouse that weren't there when they arrived and she went to the bathroom the first time so then Kate kind of starts to get nervous but she doesn't want to get freaked out because if she gets freaked out then Allie will go mental and so she's trying to act like she's not scared even though she is concerned and a little bit scared about these dead rabbits and why the guys have been gone so long and so they come to the agreement that Allie will wait behind in the cabin and lock all the doors and Kate will go and look for the guys but she'll like go kind of quickly and come right back and you know just sort of out and back and keep checking in like that's the agreement well she doesn't come back either yeah and so we get you know the the thing that always happens with this subtrope of the escaped killer which is that you get the sort of menacing figure that you can't really see like you see in silhouette or it's you know obscured from the camera's view but that the character thinks is definitely the killer. So Allie stays in the house and there's a rattling at the back door and she's like, Kate, Kate, is that you? And then the camera shows us from outside. So we see a man from behind in a beanie holding an axe trying to get in the door. And then just as the door opens, we only see like a glimpse of the axe and like his head. So Allie runs away like ah, screaming through the woods because she's terrified. And then we we see like we cut to this other house. Yeah. And the three, the two boyfriends and Kate are sitting in the other house watching a basketball game. Yeah. And then eventually Allie comes. Well, so Allie runs by the window screeching. Yeah. And then like realizes what she just ran by comes back sees them and is like opens the door sees them through the window opens the door and is like 
what the hell? Yeah. And I feel like this, the whole sort of logic and storytelling here suffers from them not having an exterior set, you right. know, and maybe, maybe they wanted it this way, but that whole scene that you're describing where Allie runs past the door, we're seeing that all from the living room. As right. Though, we just see a blur through the window. Right. As though we're just watching a normal sitcom set that's taking place in a living room. So we never get to see the connection with any of these, any of these four characters going from point A to point B. So it is a moment of genuine confusion when they cut from this, you know, Allie getting freaked out and running away from the silhouetted hatchet guy. And then you're just suddenly in this affluent looking living room and you're just like, oh, how did they get there? Well, okay, I guess the story will explain it. And then when Allie comes, you're like, wait, how did she even get there? And then you have to retroactively understand it by one of the boyfriends says, oh, well, what happened was I was going out and then I, uh, I saw this house. And so I came over here. So we eventually find out that this was the house they were supposed to be at the whole time. Right. And the way we find that out is that the guy who was teed up to be the scary guy with the axe is the like caretaker of the properties. And he lives in the little shanty that they yeah. mistook down the road. So he thanks Allie for cleaning up his place because she yeah. had straightened everything up. He and says, sorry, I wasn't here to let you in. I was down at the town library. <laughs> is that supposed to be just to show us like how wholesome and nice he is that he goes to the library? I don't know. Yeah, the whole thing was... Was a little weird. The thing that kind of irked me about all of this is that I was totally on Jane Curtin's side with being scared. This was a shitty situation. And then everybody left one by one by one and gets wrapped up in a basketball game and doesn't come back to like let them know like especially Kate who knows that the cop had come and freaked them both out like everyone was like downplaying their you know worry or concern to such a way that was it was belittling it was rude and I got really like I got annoyed and so Allie shows up and she's like like her face, Jane Curtin's face is great. She's like, what the hell? You know, like, why are you here? She can barely speak. She's like, I loathe all of you. Yeah. And they're just like, what's your problem? We got wrapped up in the game. It's no big deal. What the fuck? It's no big deal. Like, no, you come back. We were worried about you. Like, you let it communicate, especially Kate. Who knew? I, oh. And they were all just like, oh, the, oh, sorry, basketball. Oh, the game's so good. And kept getting distracted by a basketball game. Yeah, no, that is the joke for the whole scene is that they keep going like, yeah, we were about to tell you, but then, oh, my God, pass it. You know, they keep uh, yeah doing that thing. And yeah, it's, you know, it's sitcom-y. It is what it is. I mean, I guess that's that's part of the, the thing of the show is they, they all love the sports. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess what I wanted, though, is and what I wish had happened in the writing was for them to write like a full Allie meltdown where she she just like lays into them or gets all mad in some way right. instead of just being like 
seriously, uh, guys? Like a release. Right. Like, I was waiting for that. And I was kind of bummed. I was like, man, that's like that's what need. And they had the perfect moment for it, too, where they had every, they're sitting on the couch. And then the other guy comes back in and is like, oh, sorry. Oh, yeah, I'll go, you know, get something for you or whatever. So you guys will be fine. And 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 then they have this moment and it just is deflated. Right. Jane Curtin's character is like, well, I guess it wasn't that bad, you know, and I'm like, no, this is the time where you lay into them for being shitty friends. Yeah, because the whole scenario is so weird to begin with. Yeah, and it ends with them back at home. And like we were saying, it's sort of one of one of those like, you know, if they were complaining about noise and pollution before, now they're kind of going like, ah, noise, ah, pollution. You know, like we kind of, you know, all those familiar things that were driving us crazy. I guess we can't live without them. You know, cheers to the city. <laughs> I was away just long enough to to miss my normal. Yeah. And so I don't know. I mean, this one... You know, like I said, it, the the show itself wasn't a laugh riot in terms of like tracking the trope. I don't know. You get a lot of the sort of mini tropes that I think of with this kind of thing. You know, if you're out in the woods, whether it's a romantic getaway or a sort of like camping trip type thing, uh, I expect, you know, there's a decent chance that a escaped convict <laughs> might be involved. Or a game and a fire might be involved. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, we get all of the usual things, but I don't know. I guess we're saying that Kate and Allie didn't make a huge impression this no time. i'd i'd much rather go back to an earlier season all right someday moving on to mad about you season one episode 14 weekend getaway yeah so mad about you this is in the 90s this is squarely in our sort of coming of age time you know we were obviously aware of this as tv people so what was your relationship with mad about you um another one that i feel like my parents watched more than i did it was about a young kind of yuppie couple in new york city and they were a couple they were like married or, or like engaged or something i don't were they married yet yeah, in the I, first yes. season they're, they were they're young yes they're a young married couple yeah so they i mean their lives were just so vastly different from mine in 1993 but i did enjoy it i remember thinking it was a good show the other thing i kind of remember about this is that it's like in the same universe as friends and seinfeld right. because there's not only did you have the ursula phoebe crossover into friends but when paul reiser's character moves out of his apartment to move in with jamie the guy who rents his apartment or sublets his apartment or whatever is Kramer from Seinfeld. Yeah, I remember when this show was being promoted. Don't ask me why I remember this weird random little joke from a talk show like 35 years later. But Paul Reiser was on Letterman or one of those shows promoting this when it was about to come out. And his joke was, yeah, they were going to call it Jerry's little friend, Paulie. You know, he was, <laughs> he was, wow. He was kidding himself about how this whole thing was so clearly on the coattails of Seinfeld. This is another show with a Jewish comedian in New York City and his wacky life. And yeah, it, it clearly was this sort of cinematic universe where all of those shows all took place in the same city and I think at a glance, they all have a similar sensibility. But what was very clear to me watching it this time is that 
they're not that similar. You know, no. we've talked before about how Seinfeld and Friends, the two sort of juggernauts of 90s metropolitan sitcoms, are themselves very different. And this one is very different to either of them. I feel like this is uh, one of the sort of you know, the the classy sitcoms that we would call it. In the <laughs> 90s, I think you had this sense of like, all right, we've gone too far with the ALFs and, uh, you know, just oh, whether it's the shows as a whole or the individual storylines getting more and more ridiculous in the 80s into the 90s, that now we're going to have these kinds of shows that are just more grounded and all the characterizations are going to be a little more true that show rock was definitely like this i would throw caroline in the city a little bit into that yes. world will and grace even and so yeah this is like that i think it's much more subdued than than seinfeld and friends and what really struck me this time is this might as well have been When Harry Met Sally, the TV show. Oh, a hundred. This is very much the Nora Ephron sensibility. You know, Nora Ephron is the writer of When Harry Met Sally, who would go on to make Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail. And her whole thesis of all of her movies can sort of be summed up with men and women. Eh? Kind of funny, right? A lot of, <laughs> lot of funny little differences there. Yeah. Well, Nora Ephron also likes a nice nebbishy guy. And so she, I mean, this is not a Nora Ephron show, but I think you're spot on in that. And one of the things that I kind of remember from back in the day, you know, we talk a lot about TGIF and our experiences with TGIF. Well, this was part of that must-see TV yeah. Thursday night block mm -hmm. that was more, it, it wasn't skewed for families as much it was skewed no. for grown-ups or you know teen or i'm sorry um uh, uh, people in their 20s you know and and beyond and so i think for us it was like some of these shows we were into and some of these shows we knew in passing and this one in particular one of the big things that i remembered was that paul riser's character plays sort of second fiddle to the much more like type a personality in of helen hunt's character yeah Paul Reiser is an interesting figure because I think he's very, very likable. He's one of those presences that when I find out that Paul Reiser is in a movie or a show or something, I'm like, oh, good. I like that guy. And again, you see the clear continuity from Billy Crystal, or rather, I guess, going way back, starting with Woody Allen, getting a little bit watered down and sort of the edges sanded off to Billy Crystal. And then that sort of passes the torch to Seinfeld and Paul Reiser. They're, they're metropolitan. They're very Jewish. Uh, they're, they're very kind of, kind of nervous and put upon, but they've also got a little bit of that, that masculinity that we kind of responded to, whatever it is. But I guess what I'm starting to realize is that Paul Reiser is a very, he's a very likable presence. He's not like a genius on the level of a Seinfeld or a Michael J. Fox. Like he doesn't, he's not bringing as much. No, the the person to watch in this pairing is Helen Hunt, a hundred percent. And what's all what's interesting to me about that, and also it was interesting to me that you mentioned him as being this comedian, because I think of Paul Reiser as one of the dads from My Two Dads. Yeah, he's that too. But he also was a stand-up, right? Yeah, in no, you're 80s. right. He was. I just didn't remember or know him as that. My my experience was him with him was only as a dad from My Two Dads. So then this was like, oh 
know this is what he does next. Well, that's the thing is that, and look, not everybody has to be Jerry Seinfeld, but Seinfeld was this amazing comedian who brought, you know, combined obviously with Larry David, brought this whole new sensibility and and mentality to writing sitcoms and to, to even acting them and everything. Whereas Paul Reiser is like, a funny guy, you know, right. and like a pretty good stand-up comic that, yeah, kind of got in on the ground floor of like parlaying that into various sitcom roles. And, you know, he's great in Aliens, where he's the sort of corrupt uh, business guy, you know, because it's using his his sort of affability kind of against you. And then it's even better when he shows up 20, 30 years later in Stranger Things, and they're using your prejudices against him from Aliens to make him the unexpected good guy in that, you know. So uh, what I'm saying is he's I always like watching him but it's it's not like some of these other people where you're guaranteed to really lock into like something good every time he's in it yeah that's interesting the way you're describing his career since um, mad about you is character roles and how he's shining in these character roles more than we're really seeing him shine here in this kind of leading man role yeah and then Helen Hunt as you were saying is an amazing actress but I guess not to be not to be just sort of underwhelmed by everything we're talking about tonight, but I guess what I found this time is like uh, you're you're trying to make a sitcom that's a little more grounded and mature and less ridiculous, but then it's almost like the joke's on you because it's still a sitcom, you know, like if we wanted to see something with real insight and depth, we wouldn't especially in the 90s, you would watch a movie or something and now the series comes across as a little boring or a little neither fish nor fowl because it doesn't have that like distinction like those other shows do. Yeah. And so, you know, we kind of we come down hard on the later seasons of shows very often saying that, you know, they clearly jumped the shark and they're very tropey now. This is season one. So uh, sometimes we talk about, oh, maybe they hadn't hit their stride yet or maybe, you know, th this or that. I'm just wondering if... It was if it's too soon to get the characters out of their normal life, of their normal situation right. in the situation comedy, if it's too soon to do that in season one. And yeah. that's why we're sort of we don't have any real conflict. You know, I, I, I thought it was kind of interesting how, you know, one of my big memories from this show is that. It's a sort of reverse of the thing that I complain about in the later 90s, uh, early 2000s sitcoms like King of Queens and Ray Romano, where the wife is always kind of made out to be a shrew. Um, in this one, it's like you have this kind of powerhouse woman just sort of oh yeah hon you know they're bickering and stuff and she's kind of she's the heavy and he's sort of like whiny and not really you know he's the one yeah. that's kind of passive and sort of a beta to use a, a shitty term mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> it also grows out of I think again that tradition from Woody Allen the the helplessness you know the the modern metropolitan man is you know he can quote Nietzsche and stuff but he doesn't know how to you know boil a lobster or right well, and I don't I think in Paul Reiser's case, in, in this character, he can't do that either. Yeah. But OK, season one, episode 14, weekend getaway. Like you said, they're already sort of changing up the formula. But I would argue 
They're changing it up in a pretty basic way, right? right? These are metropolitan people. The episode begins with them in the kitchen, uh, kvetching about city life, not unlike Kate and Allie, yep. you know, too noisy, too crowded. They're one-upping each other on, like, who had the worst commute home. One, you know, Paul Reiser's character was stuck in a subway after the, you know, in the tunnel for an hour and a half. And, yeah. you know, so, stuff stuff we've experienced. Yeah, it's no, real life. It's, it's all true. <laughs> and so is there any particular catalyst beyond, like, why don't we just get out of town? We'll go to Vermont. Yeah, we'll go to Vermont. Uh, no, they. I mean, they're complaining, complaining about the city and how unhappy they are. And uh, Paul Reiser's character is like, let's get away. And Jamie, um, Helen Hunt's character, is kind of like immediately like, ooh, but work. Yes. So this is very much a common thread in this episode. And one assumes in the whole show, she's a workaholic in that very 90s way where it's like, give me my fax machine. Where's my Rolodex? Yeah, the way it comes off to me is, I mean, okay, so she's the vice president of a PR firm. So she has a big job that never ends, right? Also, as a person who has a big job that never ends, like, I get it. It's hard to turn off. But I think at least in my lifetime as or my career lifetime, I feel like the mindset of it's OK, even being a person who doesn't have children to uh, set some boundaries. Right. Yeah. That wasn't the case in the 90s. You Like you there was no such thing as boundaries. You just kept going and going and going until you burnt out and decided to go buy a farm, which is what we see in this episode. Right. She she finally relaxes and then she immediately turns her type a personality onto i really like this i'm gonna make this my life yeah she's sort of serious about everything but yeah so to sort of back up they decide to go to vermont now just so i know that you know how far <laughs> away is vermont from new york I feel like you would know this better than I do. You grew up here. Isn't it like three or four hours? Okay, that's kind of what I thought. So like a handful of hour drive. They go to a hotel with no reservations. That's odd, right? Like that's not something you would do. I mean, who knows in 1993, maybe you could just like drive up until you saw a pretty inn and and make a reservation because it's not like they had, you know, Google or a, a Yellow Pages for Vermont where they were. Well, but you had the thing where you would call the number 555-1212 or whatever and say, can I have the number for a hotel in Vermont? That's true. But if you want to find like a bed and breakfast, which is what, or like an inn, which is what they were kind of aiming for. I don't know. I feel like maybe you did go like picturesque yeah. hunting. I, not being a grown-up who was taking weekend getaways in 1993, I don't really know. Yeah, no, this this seemed weird to me that they show up at the hotel. Uh, there's a funny character actor, you know, manning the hotel desk that's going to be their sort of adversary throughout the whole episode. And Jamie has a pretty clever gambit here. She goes, oh, I guess, I don't know, I guess Bruce was wrong. He said that it would be no problem. And and she somehow implies that she's talking about Bruce Robertson, the CEO of this hotel chain. And she basically nonchalantly convinces this hotel clerk that she's friends with the CEO. Right. Because she, she says it in this sort of like throw off manner. And, you know, and he's like, wait, Bruce, uh, well, uh, we have a suite 
that could be just for you. Okay, you know. And so, um, and she was like, great. Well, you tell Bruce I said hi. Thanks so much. Yeah. And so they get to the hotel. It's nice, right? This isn't another, uh, you know, the, the lodgings are crappy. It's a nice hotel. The mattress yields. That's, that's Paul Reiser's <laughs> line. He says, I love this bed. The mattress yields. Uh, the only TV show they can watch is Barnaby Jones. I right. guess that's it's like just... a marathon happening and they only have, I think they're kind of making it out like there's only one station exactly. that they're able to get because this is, you know, it's one of these like cozy homey inns. Yes. And they're trying to make a very stark contrast between, you know, city life and whatever this is. So yeah, only one TV channel. And and Jamie is too clenched for sex, right? Paul wants to get amorous and she's all clenched up. She's just too tight. And she just says, like, I can't do it. I'm not in the mood. Yeah. She's like, I just need a little more time to, uh, you know, relax before we before we go full vacation mode. And um, she struggles with that. You know, she was like, OK, well, I'm just going to run downstairs really quick. I need to go get a toothbrush yeah. or she something. She says, I need to get gum. Gum. That's what it is. And then she goes down to the front and makes a call to the person who's her I think her friend that's watching their dog and is like hey um will you fax me over the whatever file I left next to the bedside table I need it yeah and then the friend's like hang on I have another call and it's Paul Reiser calling from the hotel room saying tell my wife to get up here you know like the jig is up he knows that she was just sneaking out to to call her and use the fax machine so, yeah, we're just establishing this thing that, you know, Paul Reiser initially is taking to this vacation. He's more laid back just by his nature. And, yeah, Jamie is a ball of nerves. And the the scenic getaway, the escape from the city, isn't working. You know, that's the crux of this, is that it's not, if anything, it's just compounding. So Paul's solution is, I have an idea. Let's do the polar bear club thing, right? Let's right. jump into the, the you know, freezing water at the crack of dawn tomorrow. Yes. Or they're doing it in 20 minutes oh, or something. Okay. right? Or no, that's because she had kind of stayed up all night. He wakes up at like 345, three o'clock in the morning or whatever. Right. And Jamie hasn't gone to sleep yet. She's sitting on the edge of the bed watching this Barnaby Jones marathon and making the joke that he's a hundred. 102 years old, they mm -hmm. should let him have a break, you know, l laughing about the... I love when we laugh about TV shows inside of other TV shows. Yeah, well, this was similar to the... Uh, what was the Tom Arnold one? The Jackie Thomas show, uh -huh. where... You know, just especially in the 90s, I think there were certain things like if you mentioned the Brady Bunch, like, ooh, boo, that's tacky. You know, just certain things were like a shorthand for like an old, lame mentality. Right. You know, and I and guess Barnaby, Barnaby Jones, Jones, I guess, is, yeah. is one of it's them. It's just the silly name, I think. It's just the I know. Barnaby. I know. So, so anyway, so Paul wakes up and Jamie's watching television and he's like, you know, I'm turning it off. And she's like, I can't go to sleep, you know, and tries to take the remote back. And he's like, you know what? In 20 minutes from now, the polar bear club is jumping into the lake. That's it. Or the, you know, the river or whatever. We're doing it. Get up, get your clothes on. Let's go. And so she's like, oh, I'm not going to like it. I'm not going to like it. Cut to they've done it. Now they're sitting there having breakfast at the normal breakfast hour. And Paul is 
still freezing, can't get warm after doing the plunge. And Jamie is invigorated and yeah. completely, it is like... It, total it, reversal. It, total reversal. She is looking at the local paper, looking at listings. I want to move here. This is the life that we need. You yeah. are so right. Thank you for opening my eyes. And he's like, uh, I'm freezing cold. I really would like some Chinese food. I want to go home. And yeah, this is the part that I think we both can relate to heavily is when you are a city dweller, that feeling whether it's you going to visit somebody, you go on vacation or whatever, and you just start to get seduced, you know, by the, oh my God, what, what would it be like if we lived here? You know, if nothing else, just the cost of living. Oh my God, I know. She was doing what, I, I mean, I am of the perfect age to be obsessed with Zillow. So that is what I do. I house hunt all the time, even in places I'm never going to live. But yeah, she's, she says the same thing that I say to you all the time, which is like, oh my God, for the cost of an apartment in our neighborhood, we could buy a seven bedroom house with a full basement. And, you know, we're just like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. Yeah. And so, of course, Paul is like, well, but what would we do? What would your job be? And so she starts brainstorming. She says all the things everybody says when you're contemplating something like this. Well, we could open a store or a restaurant. We could buy a farm, you know, because that's part of this whole fantasy, I think, is the idea that like, well, Everything is so affordable and the community is so tight knit that you just kind of find your niche and you're like, oh, well, I'll be the guy that, you know, sells birdhouses at the corner shop or right. I'll be the farmer that, you know, grows watermelons or whatever it is. You Everybody know. needs a Chinese restaurant. So that's her last idea is that well, she's like, there's no Chinese restaurant right, here. We, we'll open one. Yeah, we skipped over that, that before she's had this epiphany, one of the big examples of, uh, you know, the, the case against living out in the country. And this is also something that we can heavily relate to is that thing of we're hungry and it's past 9 PM. And so there's, you know, uh, just the whole commercial world goes to bed at this yeah, time. Everything's closed. They go down to have dinner at eight 30. The inn, the kitchen is closed. The closest restaurant closed. The nearest McDonald's is a three hour drive. There's no grocery store. There's no, they, they don't have an efficiency kitchen in their, uh, in their room anyway. So they couldn't do anything if, even if they were trying to make something. So then that's her idea is, Oh, you know that they clearly need that here. We could do, we, you know, we could open a Chinese restaurant, but then the then what they decide to do is finally call the city yeah. and order from their little local Chinese restaurant that they always order from and say, you know, we'll make it worth your while. Yeah. <laughs> Come on up here. Five hours drive to Vermont. Yeah. And so they sort of leave that open ended. I think we, the audience, are supposed to assume at first that the uh, restaurant refused to serve them because they were in another state. We get a little city and country debate, you know, like we got back at the Andy Griffith show. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, look, what can we say? This, this is some this is a debate that is raging in our minds and lives as we speak. It's, you know, the pros and cons are both so formidable uh, that that it is hard. And as you move through life, sometimes you change. But in in this case, it seems like we're supposed to understand at the end of the day, 
these are two people who belong in the city for now. Yeah. I mean, I think what's interesting about Paul in this episode is that he very much is already able to turn it on and turn it off mm -hmm. in terms of like the rush and hustle and bustle of what it is to live in the New York, in the New York City area or in the city proper. And Jamie is not able to turn that off and on. She is type A. She just goes, 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 whatever she does, wherever she is. She's the type of person that you need to start a business in a tiny little town because she will just work her ass off. She's like you. You never stop. Like that. <laughs> that's totally her personality. Yeah. And then just like me, she freaks out when she's out of her element. Now, <laughs> it is, it's nice to see in a show like this, especially in the 90s, the woman being clearly the more operatic and sort of cartoonish character. In a sense, her emotions kind of bouncing all over the place, whereas he's the more even-keeled one. Um, yeah, Until it's, it's, he gets cold. Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, they both have their <laughs> moments for sure. But yeah, it's just an interesting dynamic. The other thing I just wanted to point out, it's interesting how now, you know, with all three of these and going into Martin, the antics or hijinks or things gone wrong it's never it's never the couple like against each other as much as I would have thought. Like I would have guessed we're covering a bunch of sitcoms, romantic getaways that go sideways. I would have thought everyone would be the couple is at each other's throat by the end, but it's always kind of something else. Yeah, well, and I wonder if that's because our, you know, our most recent show is Martin 1995. I think the episode that we watched is from um, the 1995 season. So we are like the only show in this era that's doing that mean stuff is Married with Children. We don't have a ton of shows yet that have kind of flipped that switch into the the dynamic where they don't like each other and the ones that we used to have like an all in the family even though that, that wasn't an i don't like each other kind of thing but they gave each other shit they never went out of town because they couldn't afford it sure but i would say even the most humanistic you know sitcoms people people can still get into fights i'm not saying that there wasn't it, it, i'm not remarking as much that there wasn't like the toxic attitude just that i would have guessed that the stories would have taken that shape yeah uh, even in a sort of nice sitcom yeah well it's it, you, i think you're right though that it is interesting that it just so happened mm -hmm. that the four that we have that didn't that didn't happen yeah all right so let's move on to martin the romantic weekend season three episode 24 yeah so we talked about martin before back in our class reunions episode and I think it's fair to say that was one of our most sort of pleasantly surprised, like, not that we had poor expectations for Martin, but we really kind of liked that, I think. And it was latched onto so it. funny. I, I just remember, I remember not remembering how physical yeah. comedy was at the heart of this show. And now seeing a second episode, it really is like this whole episode is just about them. I swear there's there's pages of the script where it's yeah. just like Martin fights well, Pam. Martin fights rodent. <clears throat> it's not the first. It's not the whole episode, I think. It's like the whole second half of it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, wh where I'm going with this is we covered it once before. It was a season two episode. This is a season three episode of Martin. And it seems like a lot has changed, which isn't to say this one isn't good. But 
it seems different. I think the vibe is different. I remember you talking about how they had issues, Tisha Campbell and Martin Lawrence behind the scenes. And I remember saying like, oh, that's kind of surprising. They seem so, so, you know, sort of clicking together on screen. And in this one, it seems a little more believable to me that they might have had issues off screen. What I'll say is that Martin is giving us a lot to react to. I think there's going to be a lot to talk about here. Good stuff, bad stuff. The sort of trade-off that I'll throw out there right away is in this one, we get no Shanene. That's right. right. We considered Shanene one of the more problematic elements of season two, Martin. So we've gotten rid of that. What we have now is his friend Tommy's girlfriend, right, that every single thing that Martin says to her is a joke about her being an animal. Well, and he, we had Pam in the episode in season two that we watched as well, and he didn't like her then either. Right. But a different dynamic because there's a difference. It has gotten way worse. Like the focus, he can't say anything to her without him calling her a horse, a dog, a rodent, something. Yeah. It's an aspect that doesn't age well, I will say, which isn't to say I necessarily think it's evil and sinister. What I... What I just started thinking was like, yeah, again, this like Martin is going to make us work for it. Like he's going to quadruple down on any aspect of the comedy that you might find a little problematic or troubling, you know, like you're not going to be able to just kind of brush it off and go, well, he only did that once. Like, no, he's going to do it again and again. Uh, but what what it got me thinking is like he's sort of the opposite of Michael J. Fox, we said says everything with this childlike wink that even if it's bad, you don't take it too seriously. Martin, on the other hand, is just so angry that it's funny, you know? Yeah, he is. He he is. He only has kind of biting remarks except for Gina. Mm -hmm. And he will say them in such a way that he's not saying them like a human person talking to his friends. He is saying them so that the studio audience will laugh. Yeah. Yeah. He's very much a cartoon character, a comedian or whatever. But there's just something about his brimming, brewing contempt that just is entertaining. And so, you know, like, look, we can approach every show like with this Mr. Rogers attitude and say everybody should be nice to each other. You know, again, watching it in 2023, having like 17 remarks about how, you know, the woman's a dog, go chew on your chew toy, whatever. You know, I I see your cousin over there peeing on a fire hydrant, you know, like, yes, it gets old. But it's got something going that he's he's funny and I don't write it off the way I do the other stuff. I guess the last thing I'll say about this is I wish, I just wish she got more digs on him. The Pam character was able to. Well, so what I always find interesting is because like he always goes for her first and then she gets a comeback and then he gets another comeback because it's his show. And then Gina steps in like that's sort of the patter of the the constant whatever. Gina never comes to the defense of her friend, but she redirects Martin 
to not focus on that, to focus on her. And the minute she says something, Martin isn't angry anymore. Yeah. Like she is his little magic salt, like magic balm that calms him down. The thing that I noticed about Gina and what I feel is kind of the change that I've seen with the Gina character between when we watched in season two to this is almost the end of season three. In season two, Martin was doing nice things for her because he loved her and he knew she was stressed out from work and wanted her to get all prettied up and all this stuff for the for the reunion. In this one, he is only doing nice things for her because she's begging him because she's so bored. And her way to do that is with this like baby talk voice yeah. that was, I was like, whoa, I mean, it's funny. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's funny, but it's weird. I was like, why... Every now and then, I think it would work. But why always, Martin, why have women, man? I'm like, what? I think she's just being wacky. Like, yeah. that's the thing that we remarked on last time with this show that definitely continues is that Gina gets to be wacky, maybe not just as much as Martin, but a lot. And that's a big part of this show. And that does make it different from so many of the married couple sitcoms. Yeah. Like, I mean, and, and their wackiness is awesome <laughs> yeah but i think that's just what that is like martin again this is in the era where jim carrey ruled the world where it's you know you gotta have a rubber face and you know gonna be like like robin williams all these guys just lots of voices and weird you know physical stuff and so yeah i think you know Tisha Campbell doesn't come from the same comedy world as Martin Lawrence does. And in a lot of ways, it's more impressive to me because she has to absorb that energy just as an actor, a performer, like coming here with an assignment. Whereas for him, this is from his crazy mind, you know, right. and all of this, these are his natural tics and weirdnesses. And so, yeah, I think stuff like the weird baby voice and whatever, like, I think she's just kind of throwing stuff at the wall. She's just creating something that will go like a lot, that will come alongside of, like you said, his sort of contempt and like angry manic energy. And look, so the premise of this episode Tommy and Pam are dating now. Mm -hmm. They were uh, Gina's best friend and Martin's best friend. And now they've gotten together. Martin hates it because he hates Pam. And they've been dating for six months. And Tommy's going to take her on a romantic weekend. And Gina's kind of put out because Martin and Gina have been engaged for a long time. And Martin never takes her anywhere. So she's kind of pouty about that. And then Martin sees this ad on the back of a cereal box for Chilligan's Island. Yeah. And is like, okay, baby, I've been planning this for a long time. We only need 10 more box tops now, and we can go. Yeah. So we just watched the movie Punch Drunk Love just by coincidence a few days ago. This reminded me so much of that the Adam Sandler movie where he's trying to collect pudding tops, trying to trying to buy pudding tops so the proof of purchases can get him air, airline miles. <laughs> right. Uh, but yeah, you know, I guess talk about pre-internet. I guess this was a thing like you would find a weird discount, not on a cereal box, but like there's, there's I mean, it can still be a thing now. Airbnb ads lie. Sure. So, yeah, this is Chilligan's Island, Chilligan's Isle, I should say, uh, which they find on the back of a cereal box. And yeah, this was one of the moments where it's like they're they're just sort of on the same page where like. 
Martin is getting all crazy and silly and excited about it. And she just starts getting crazy and silly and excited, too. Yeah, she goes right along with his energy. She's like, Martin, you're going to take me. I'm so excited. You know, oh, thanks, Martin. Yeah. So, again, it's I mean, I don't know, like they're they're a little dumb, I guess. But, you know, I, I like that it's not the usual like one of them is the boring wet blanket. Right. And so, you know, it does like cut right to the chase, you know, right? Like next, you know, probably go to a commercial or something. Next scene, we're in the, the you know, resort and it's a disaster. Yeah, it's run down. The walls are gross. The floor is dirt. The Everything's falling apart. And, you know, the, just everything that was on the brochure is a lie. But the guy's like, well, the next flight out isn't for three days, so yeah. you can't get your money back. The hotel manager is just completely unapologetic. Yeah. In He's his like, life. oh, well, you're right. It's a bait and switch. Gotcha. But it also reminded me a lot of the New York City realtor things, like all of his little euphemisms where it's like, no, it's just like I said, you have a scenic view. And he shows you, you you know, the view of the wall. It was a view of a clothesline with dirty underwear hanging from it. And he he says there's an international communication system and he picks up a dead payphone. Yeah, exactly. All those same little sort of like positive spins that the that the realtors like to do. But (laughs) now we get to the part that that you were talking about. I think this is the reason why this episode is so popular. I have to think it's not because the first half was so interesting when Gina was complaining that they don't ever take vacation. The first half is all a setup so they can do two full acts of beating up an animatronic and puppet rodent chinchilla looking thing. Yeah. We see uh, there's there's an unnamed animal. It's right, fluffy that's... and gray and has a tail that wags. And people keep thinking it's a dog, but it is not. Right. They only think it's a dog at first whenever right. a new person sees it. It rolls around. It's basically like a skin that you would put over a Roomba, you know, one of those <laughs> vacuum cleaners. It's like about that size and shape. And rolls around, and so you see it moving in a way that it's clearly rolling as opposed to scampering. Right. Uh, And so it's immediately very, very fake, and it just reminds me of these scenes that we always loved in Married with Children, where once in a while... Al Bundy would get like thrown across a room or something and they would just cut to a dummy, just a completely lifeless, obviously unconvincing dummy. And just the way, the random spastic way that the limbs would move and just the way it looks absolutely nothing like a real person when you weren't expecting it, you know, at least when I watched it at, you know, 14, 15 years old, I thought it was the funniest thing. (laughs) And I think this is that kind of humor where it's just like, especially for the studio audience, but even for the people at home, it's just funny how dumb this looks. Right. And so like the thing scoots out of out of the room because Martin's like chasing it and then comes flying back at Martin uh, in the air. Through the window, right? Through the window. Like someone has now thrown the puppet version or the stuffed animal version at Martin. So he's holding it and trying to keep it away from his neck. And then, of course, it gets his neck. And then you've got the, you know, the classic gag of I'm fighting with this stuffed animal, holding it up yeah, to my neck. Trying to, it yeah, to your neck. And then Gina's coming up behind him, like hitting the ass of it that's kind of 
of swinging in the air in front of him and he's trying to like punch the side of the head and you know and Gina has her well we talked about this in the reunion episode right where like her legs were just like splayed out everywhere when she was um, she was like hopped up on pills yes. or something she's right? very good at playing the sort of like like I'm throwing away my dignity yeah kind of she she is in a sarong and she's like she's got very she's tall she's got really long legs so she's got her legs spread wide and she's just taking this wide leg stance and like speed bagging this little weird rodent thing that's attacking Martin yeah it goes on and on and yes it is very much like if you remember every once in a while on Saturday Night Live they'll do one of these things with the the little things the little tubes they put in their sleeve to to spew like vomit, vomit and blood. all over the places yeah. and it's purely just like a gas for the audience like that's all it is is just like craziness similar to We've had a few things like this. The Laverne and Shirley thing where they were reenacting the Olympics and chasing each other around the set. Like there are certain things where you're just like, this was just like a circus you oh, know, yeah. for the audience for the to see. Audience. And even even watching it on TV, you sort of feed off of that. Oh, sure. And I, I thought it was really funny. I was enjoying it. And then it kind of comes to a close. And then we hear through the wall of the, yeah. you know, rundown um, hotel, we hear Pam and Tommy, who were supposed to have gone on a weekend getaway to a luxurious resort. Turns out, same resort, they take the mirror off the wall and there's a big hole and there's Pam and Tommy cut to commercial. Now we come back from commercial and they're all fighting with each other. They're arguing with each other about, you were just trying to one-up us. No, you just trying to always make us look bad. And, da, 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 da. and now we're in this dump and look what you did and all this stuff. And then, surprise, here comes the chinchilla thing again. Yeah. And this was kind of sweet that, you know, <laughs> again, more fighting. And when we say, you know, when Amy talks about, oh, you know, half the, the script was this. I mean, Jesus, this this must have been like a 10 page script because these these fights just go on and on. So at one point, Martin and Pam are fighting it together. Right. And. You know, because of the incessant nastiness between them, it does sort of feel like this well-earned character beat when they finally defeated the animal, or so they think, and they're just sort of left there like, yeah, man, you know, you, you, did, you did a good, good job. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, all right, at least, you know, when the chips are down they're they're able to, to come together. And then Pam called him short and yeah. all bets were off and he called her a horse or something. Yeah. This was one I feel like it's funny the way the sort of like rivalry between the couples. It's basically just there as a little bit of a break from the fighting. The fighting. The chin yes. chill thing, right. <laughs> like, I don't know. It kind of goes back to the Dick Van Dyke thing of like, it was a funny adventure. You know, yeah. like we went... Uh, we went as a couple hoping for a good time, and then this crazy thing happened. Yeah. The questionable move that it makes at the end is that when they leave, the show ends on a static shot of this monster thing oh, just right. on like, the wall or something. No, they were like, oh, they're back. They're in the bed. Um, they were like, oh, this is the one safe place on this whole island is here in this bed. And then... 
turns out it's a Murphy bed. It gets they get slammed oh, up right. in the wall, and who's the under wall. the bed but that little chinchilla thing? And he is like stuck upside down to the bed like he pushed it from the ground up yes and i think the eyes the eyes glowed red the eyes and he's are like, glowing <laughs> red in this very like spencer's gifts kind of way <laughs> like to me that might have been too far like just giving you such a clear look on the thing like that's where i wrote in my notes this looks like something you would buy to cover up your roomba in a funny way you know yes it's absolutely just and they disc. sat on it for a good while and the studio audience is just cheering and laughing yeah that's what i mean where at that point they're kind of high on their own supply i think and it's like ah, guys it was funnier when like we knew it was fake but it was funnier when you're just seeing it moving fast in the crappy video resolution and everything. And it has a little bit of a sense of like, we don't know exactly what it looks like. Now we really just see it is this crappy prop. Yeah. And uh, it deflates it a little bit. I, I mean, think. my favorite of my favorite part of all the fight scenes nearing the end of the first part of the second fight they're fighting, Pam and Martin are fighting it at the door. They've kind of like slammed it in the door. And so like Martin's beating it yeah. and then Pam's like reaching outside and beating the, the butt that's sticking outside. And they're trying to like push it back out the door. And so they do. And then you see a person's hand <laughs> like come and put it back up in the window. Yeah. And I was like, yep, I like it. All right. Yay, puppetry. <laughs> yeah. They're not going for, you know, Stan Winston level uh, special effects <laughs> no. here. So, yeah, looking back over these, this is a weird sort of shaggy episode for us. Like, there's definitely overlap. Again, these are all urban couples. Mm -hmm. uh, Martin and Gina don't have the thing of, like, we're sick of city life. For them, it's more of, like, a sort of gendered thing. Like, Gina wants to get away, and Martin's just right, kind of a lazy right. bum. But nonetheless, we all have these sort of, like, young metropolitan couples getting away to the country, I think the common thread really just is like it's a nice little springboard to get the characters out of their element and have a little adventure. It's not one of those where they're always going to use it to have the same like character arc. No, and I think part of that is like you were mentioning before that we just sort of accidentally have four episodes where the conflict of the romantic getaway doesn't cause a conflict between the like the people and the couple. I think if we happen to have an episode that was like that, we probably would have seen more um, growth or some like character, you know, arc or whatever having to do with that. But we just, you know, we just didn't. But I, I wonder, is that a coincidence or are we seeing that for whatever reason, the sitcom writers tendency, their mind goes to stuff like this instead of internal strife? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like when we were first sort of thinking about this episode, I thought we would get a, a whole lot I more. did too. And but I we think didn't. we have others on our list that are that yeah. like Designing Women has a couples getaway weekend and All in the Family has a similar like couples getaway and weekend. And they end up it ends up in like a battle of the sexes, right? right. Where like the men and the women are angry with each other mm -hmm. over different for different reasons. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Again, and these ones 
unlike a lot of the episodes we cover, a lot of these were fairly early in the series runs because it is, I think, a more down-to-earth trope. So we're not having to wait till like season 12 to get, you know, a time when they go on a getaway. But yeah, it also means that they're just kind of figuring things out. And so maybe that's why it is more of like a kind of a hangout vibe of like, oh, let's see what happens when Kate and Allie are are in a cabin. Uh, Maybe they'll they'll play Trivial Pursuit for a while and then they'll get scared of a a escaped killer. Yeah. I mean, bang for your buck, though. I think Dick Van Dyke is the best episode. It's got. the best story it's got the physical comedy and it's just funny yeah no i think this is one for me i would recommend the first and last you know i think that they're they're like we said at the start sort of a nice pairing because they're both you know obviously dick van dyke isn't nearly as physical as martin is but they're both kind of doing that thing they're using the actor's physical comedy prowess uh and just kind of like embracing that wackiness and so i don't know that i could really choose between like i'm just picturing dick van dyke and mary tyler moore on one side and you know martin lawrence and tisha campbell on the other side you know like i think that's a pretty good sort of compliment to each other yeah Uh, and both wives do the baby voice yeah (laughs) yeah that's true so yeah i guess that wraps it up for romantic getaways what are we talking about next week next week we are meeting the ex the bob newhart show season one episode five good night nancy Coach, Season 1, Episode 8, Parents Weekend, Home Improvement, Season 2, Episode 22, X Marks the Spot, and My Name is Earl, Season 1, Episode 21, The Bounty Hunter. Yep, that's next week, and until then, we will consider this segment of the sitcom study concluded. Thank you for listening to The Sitcom Study. Tell us what you think or share your own TV tropes and topic ideas by sending a self-addressed stamped email to sitcomstudypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. It helps us boost those precious Nielsen ratings. The Sitcom Study is recorded in front of a live studio dog. Studio dog.